Hello and welcome to Business Psychology Unplugged. I'm Ben Elman, and in today's episode, I get to speak to Dr. Mike Cheddar and Dr. Sai Islam of boutique consulting firm Talent Metrics. Mike and Sai I've known for over 10 years, and they have a wealth of knowledge as well as being amazing teachers. So sit back, get your cup of tea, get your cup of coffee or whiskey or whatever you like to drink, and enjoy. I want to welcome Dr. Sai Islam and Dr. Mike Cheddar, both of them from Talent Metrics. Dr. Sai Islam is actually a professor at Farmingdale University in Long Island, New York. And Dr. Mike Cheddar is a faculty member at University of Central Florida, among many other responsibilities within the consulting world. Welcome, Sai. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Ben. Thank you. It's great to be here. I think there's a couple of things there, right? So number one, in terms of these students, graduates, or just people in general trying to get into our field, it sounds like basically volunteering is the way because you guys just volunteer all the time at SciUp. You're always volunteering for different organizations. You've met so many people that way. And yes, you're outgoing, but also you realize like that's the way to build your business. That's the way to build your brand. And you have really cool t-shirts as well that you give out. And I think it's great. What does your t-shirt say on it? The one I was wearing today, it's obviously slightly tongue-in-cheek or facetious, but it says, <laughs> we research, we analyze, and then in gold letters, we fix everything. Yeah, hey, perfect. <laughs> right. But what I love about it is that you're not the traditional IOs because you both come from MBA backgrounds and you're trying to see it from a business point of view. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing. There's really like two types of people that I meet in the business community. I mean, you guys know I do leadership development, leadership coaching. And so I'm talking to people all the time and they don't know what IO is. And why are we trying to convince people? Why are we trying to sell IO to people? In the end, we probably should meet people where they are, Mm -hmm. right? And find out what do they call what we do? Because clearly they've been dealing with human problems in organizations for many years. Sometimes they don't have any data on it. They don't know how to collect the data on the people that work at their organizations. They don't know how to analyze the data that they're even capturing in their organization. So it kind of makes sense to find a business psychologist. If that, in fact, is the name that people are giving us, I don't know. But it just kind of makes me think the fact that we've got so many scientific people out there calling this IO, and yet no one understands that. And it's like really hard for people to explain what we do. And so we have to have this like perfect elevator pitch that you're describing, Mike. And I think to myself, unless we need to do train people in that elevator pitch, maybe we need to reevaluate the name of who we are. Because in the end, we're basically hired by often large human resource departments, people that are interested in collecting data specifically. And yet people struggle to understand who we are. So what do you guys think about changing the name away from IO? I think I'll make a quick aside and then Sia probably, we've had these conversations, but I think we go out of our way and this goes back not only to like our website and our materials, clients, and even how we advertise to clients, let alone like what's actually in reports for projects. We definitely stay away from using the word IO psychology or industrial organization all the time because it doesn't mean anything to those people. So I know we use things more like evidence-based management and workplace science and talk about taking HR principles and adding, you know, scientific method behind them and evaluating programs. Like we dance around it 
because like you said, the Iowa psychology doesn't carry any weight outside of our field. Mm-hmm. And I know Cy has definitely thought about this as well, because we've had side conversations in addition to this one. It's very funny that we're talking about this, actually, because one of my first experiences was when I was in grad school, I'm going to say maybe my first year, my first PSYOP ever, I remember there was a big survey that had gone out about changing the name of the field. So this is like early 2000s, like 2007. There was a big discussion about what do we change the name to? And it was given out to a vote, if I remember correctly, and IO Psychology won out. The phrase I would like to call our field of psych is maybe work in organizational psychology, which is what the European version of PSYOP, European Association for Organizational Work Psychology, that's what they call it. I think it works a little bit better. But I also think that there's difficulty for us in communicating what the organization is able to do and what what our field is able to do, because psychology in the United States especially is so strongly associated with mental health. When I've told people that I am an industrial organizational psychologist or that I practice that type of psychology, the first response is, oh, you provide mental health care to organizations, <laughs> right? Like To the organization, maybe, but not to the people in it. <laughs> yeah. And well, the funny thing is you both know that if you ask me to provide you with mental health care, everybody would be worse off for it, <laughs> right? There's no way that that's like a good thing. My wife is a clinician. She knows that I would be not a good clinical psychologist in any way. And so, yeah, that's a big challenge. I think there's also funny. There's so many other words for what we do now. There were maybe 10 to 15 years ago. So now do you say that you're doing people analytics? Do you say that you're doing talent analytics? Do you say that you're doing assessments. So there's a lot of different words and they kind of mean the same thing, but it really depends on what that organization, what that company has decided to call it. And you see that in a variety of different areas. So sometimes there's a human resources department that's mostly about compliance and legal stuff. There might be an organizational development department that's about change. There might be another department that's about talent development or training. And so IOs tend to bounce between those areas. And so we don't necessarily fit into any of those boxes cleanly. Yeah. yeah. So one thing there, Mike, and sorry, like my company, the company I work for, Bartel and Bartel, they use the term people analytics. It makes sense. And I think whatever title you have obviously reflects whatever language your customer understands, hopefully, and also the services that you provide. And it may be that you do instrumentation or metrics and analysis. But I want to kind of go back to the fact that PSYOP took a vote. Okay. And I'm going to be a bit playful here. And if anyone from PSYOP's listening, then give me a break. All right. But I taught research design for a while. And I know that methodology is kind of important when you're doing research. So I want to ask a kind of a controversial question here. I don't know if they actually did that survey accurately. I'm going to tell you why. I think they sampled the wrong people mm-hmm. when they did that. Because when you think about research design, you think about construct validity, right? When you're going to label something, Clearly, that was a labeling question, right? Let's do a survey. Let's label what we do, right? And now, if you're going to label something, construct validity is the important aspect of methodology. You guys agree with that? And within construct validity, you've got content validity, which is specifically getting a list off of a group of subject matter experts as to what they think something is. You've probably heard of the Pluto files, and I'm sure you sat and watched that video with the the rest of the PhD crowd. Austria. And you're trying to label something, you need to get a group of experts together, and they all basically agree on what it is, and they take a vote on it. 
And that's the reason why Pluto was demoted, because basically the whole planetary committee or whatever, they all basically decided that it didn't fit the definition of a planet and they called it a dwarf planet. So clearly content validity is the question in relation to if we're going to label something IO psychology. So my thing is, we're not the subject matter experts. We're the subject matter experts in the work, but we're not subject matter experts in terms of looking at what we do from an outside lens. The customer is the best person to define what we do for them because I feel like it would have been far. I just think that the problem is we're looking at this purely from a scientific construct basis rather than a customer facing construct. You know, what exactly do the customers think we do? For example, you can get a plumber that comes into your house and you would call them a plumber, right? But they may have more specific and technical titles within their plumbing area. But to come to a decision about what we're going to be called as a group, I just don't understand why they wouldn't get a thousand people from the business community, tell them what we do as a whole, and then, you know, get them to vote on the definition of who we are, or at least have their opinion in well, terms of who we are. Because if we're going to just come up with this title of IO psychology by getting, you know, 4,000 people to vote on it, of course, we're going to be called IO psychologists because that's the name we've had for the last 80, 100 years. And so you've got enough old people inside up, they're going to vote for it. Like change is not something people like to do. And yet it's not what the customer expects or understands. Well, then you hit on something that being controversial, definitely. My cup of tea, for sure. So, <laughs> And you alluded to some things, and I think that's part of it as a, I don't feel like this very often, but as a relatively young practitioner compared to the rest of the field, and I don't always feel so young when I look back on the work, I have to be upset sometimes of the lack of reaching out, and you said that, to being outside of our organization. And I don't know if it's lack of asking people to reach out to those connections, because there's plenty of full members of PSYOP that work internally and externally in things that are not pure IO jobs and have some of that knowledge to share. And they definitely have the connections to reach out to their businesses as a whole. And consultants have the ability to reach out to their clients, like you said, and definitely ask, how do you look at this internally? I think that would be a really smart idea. And that's part of the problem for people like Sai and myself and even yourself is we have to do that work of figuring out what clients want because it doesn't seem like the organization has a beat on that. And they are reluctant to change. And I think that is just a product of, there's not a lot of new blood necessarily in any old time organization. And that's probably the motivation for people like myself inside to get involved is we want to be part of the change. We want to give our ideas and we're currently working and we see the pitfalls and tribulations and the caveats of working. And we realize that there's a big gap between what we do with PSYOP in that world. And then what actually gets done day to day for what Cy and I do when we're not in the classroom. And mm -hmm. even in the classroom, for me, it changes the way I teach because I teach to the outside world. I don't teach to academia. I think the main thing there, Mike, is that your students, they're looking to get a job afterwards. They're not necessarily looking to go into academia, although maybe a small percentage will. Yeah. So you have to teach about the applied world, right? You have to prepare them for going to get a job. And that transition from graduating from a program and actually getting a job, they need to know the language of the street. They need to know the language of the workforce. And it seems to me that there is a very large community of human resource professionals that are doing work that is otherwise called IO psychology. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you take away payroll and benefits and some onboarding. 
And you're left with clearly IO development, training and development and leadership and other analytics, employment law and ethics and culture and engagement. I mean, all these things, they're all easy to understand words. We use them in our courses. And yet there's seems to be this gap that still exists. I don't know. Sai, what are your thoughts on that? So it's interesting that we're having this conversation about science and practice and what we do in class. I do find that like our consulting work does inform a lot of my teaching and it provides a lot of insight for students, especially around communicating IO psychology concepts to a lay audience. And one of the things that we kind of have to understand is that the split between academics and practitioners is, I think, academics want practitioners to look at the science. They're not necessarily thinking about, well, what is it about the science that we're doing that's filling a business need? And one of the big challenges is if you read through any academic paper and you see the practical implications portion of it, the practical implications are almost always, they're broad and they're sort of relatable, but you're not creating an intervention based on a journal article, right? Like those are not written for a person to read them and say, okay, now I'm going to apply this in my company or in my organization. There are a few leaps there that are needed. And so understanding that the science, the way it's currently talked about, the way it's currently disseminated is primarily focused on, here's what a journal wants, right? So if I put my academic hat on for a bit, you're submitting journal articles and you're developing a concept for a research paper, that research paper had better feed a specific need or some gap within the research literature, you're not getting rewarded for answering or addressing a business concern. So, mm-hmm. for example, about two years ago, my friend Gordon Schmidt and I, we wrote a little paper about IO psychologists rebranding themselves or repositioning ourselves as sort of testers of business fat. This was in response to a focal article by Mike Zicker and, and a few others about lean management. I mean, lean management, Ben, as you know, has been around for a really long time. And so the question posed by this paper was, should IO psychology researchers look into this? Well, the answer for Gordon and myself was, yes, if it's happening in business, we should research it and As IOs, we should absolutely talk about it, study it, and then conduct research to show how effective it is because there's lots of business practices that are out there that are not very effective. Ben, you're in leadership development. I'm sure you see lots of practice that's not useful, that's not good. And you wish you could just send people to a paper that said like, hey, this is bad. Please don't do this anymore. For me in training and development, whenever people talk about learning styles, I'm always looking at them and saying, hey, that's not a real thing. There's no research that supports it. It's not good. And people are deeply invested in it. And so that's part of the reason that we're passionate. And part of the reason that we speak for free and volunteer our time is there's a lot of bad practices that are out there and they have negative impacts on people that are actually out there in real organizations. If you're using bad tools or using bad science, you're not helping your organization. You're not helping anybody develop. I want to ask you guys about a little bit about what you guys do. Obviously, we've you've given a little bit of a, a window into your world. I'm not so much interested in all of the services because I'm sure that people can find that out on your website, which is talentmetrics.io. Yep, talentmetrics.io. Okay, awesome. My question for you is, of all the things you guys do, what do you love the most? What is the thing that if I could do this all day long in terms of what you guys do for work, I'd like to hear from both of you on this. What is it for you guys? Don't answer this from a how to get customers angle, guys. 
when does Sai come alive? And I know you do a lot of different services, but what are the things that you two just like bubble on? All right. So maybe it's a strange answer because it's not specific to any intervention that we do. I like when we wrap up a project, the messaging and branding part. I kind of have a little flair for not only kind of branding material, but I kind of pride myself in seeing how few words I can use to get the message across to a client. So I kind of like the boiling down part. Like after all the hard work is done, I kind of just like the part of changing it into action for the client and taking into consideration what I know about them. Because that kind of gets me excited when I hand it off and know that they're probably going to be able to use this and maybe even do some of the things we suggest because I've taken into account everything that I know about them. That's super exciting. And then at a really much bigger high level, I think anything we do that's touched like job analysis or performance management, I like doing because I know that IOs do it the best. I appreciate that, Mike. How about you, Cy? What is it that, even if you only do it for one hour of the week, what is it that just makes your eyes light up? I like building things. So whether that's an assessment, whether that's training program, I really like building stuff and I especially like building things with our interns and with students as they learn. That's the part of it that I really like. So a lot of times when we talk to people about people analytics, the idea is that we're going to just identify an insight and then that'll clear the path for some big lightning bolt. And that's not really how it happens, right? So part of the reason that Mike and myself, we get along is we're big sports fans and we see this a lot in sports where you can have a statistic or a piece of data, but people don't action on it appropriately or they don't build the right intervention from it. And I think that's where I really enjoy it, whether that's building a survey so that we can get to the insight or whether that's analyzing existing data from a company's learning management software or human resources information system. I like getting that, but I also like building it. So whether it's building a diversity climate survey or an engagement measure, the building is what I really like. And I enjoy bringing students along for the ride. We've been really lucky to work with students that have gone on to great careers. For example, from Tarot, we work with Pagya, who's now over at the Federal Reserve Bank doing all sorts of cool stuff. Wow. Now, we work with uh, Julia Niedemer from Montclair State. She's now at like KPMG doing great things. And so I really enjoy that process of not just developing employees for clients, but also developing that next generation of IO psychology practitioner that's going to go out there and do great work. Big part of that is in that building process and like figuring out how are we going to solve this problem that an organization has? And then how do we implement that? And then how do we analyze the data to make sure that we actually address the problem that the client had. And luckily, we've been able to work very closely with some great students on that. I want to ask you about the students, but I also want to ask you about the business need, because Uh one of the things that frustrates me a little bit in my role is that often customers will tell us what they want. It's kind of like a shop come in and they tell us, we know you do these things. We want to do this. And I'm thinking look, you wouldn't go into a medical doctor's office and say, okay, I want to have this drug. Maybe there are, (laughs) I guess there are advertisements for a reason, right? I'm guessing, oh, I've got this pain and you have seen this advert, right? But typically you go into a doctor's office and you're like, here is my pain. The doctor then takes some assessments or asks a bunch of questions, collects data. And then based on their experience and the results they get back, they will make a prescription. But that doesn't happen nearly enough within the IO space, from my experience at least. And I want to hear yours on this because 
It's more of, we know what you do. This is, we've already decided this is what we're going to have. And I'm thinking, what kind of research did you do to decide that this was the solution? Because to me, it's like, you've got a budget, you're spending it, but really, how do you know you're spending it on the right thing? This is not Costco. This is much more dynamic. We're talking about human interactions. The reason why you're coming to me is because you have a problem or you're looking for higher performance in related to humans in your workplace. So unless you've really thought about this in great depth and actually have some data behind some of your decisions and you've actually like done some surveys and you've measured with a survey that actually measure what you are trying to measure, which relates back to Sai, your point about building instruments from a business need. So I'm just wondering how often are people focusing on the needs and really digging into that before they look for people like yourselves to go and do the work. I think it happens very rarely. This is also one of my pet peeves is that a lot of clients don't want to invest in a needs assessment because they have stakeholders that have already made a decision about what the organization is going to do. We're going to institute diversity and inclusion training, right? This is actually the biggest one that I've noticed. So mm -hmm. last year when we saw all of the protests happening, organizations reached out to us and they'd already made decisions that, look, we need to have diversity training. And Mike and myself, we had a number of calls with organizations when we asked them, well, why do you want to have diversity inclusion training? And they would say, well, we think it's a relevant topic right now. And yeah. so, well, okay, maybe it's a relevant topic, but like, does this actually do something for your organization? Is there a problem? And sometimes potential clients told us that there were problems that they'd identified. They got some bad emails. Somebody had sent yeah. some negative emails to someone or almost always when it's a diversity and inclusion thing, there's always been some incident. You know, it's reactionary. It's always yeah. reactionary. Yeah. People are always saying you're not investing in DEI training unless you had a problem come up. And you're mm -hmm. definitely not reaching out to us unless there was a problem that came up. That's sad. Well, it is sad, but it's also it's so reactionary. Yeah, I think one of the big problems with DEI training is that people think it's a compliance issue. We need you to comply with the fact that you're not going to say the following words. And mm. rather than looking at it, let's look at it as a culture initiative. Let's develop a better culture within right. this organization. So one is reactive and is a band-aid. The other is let's build up a muscle and let's create a situation where people want to come work for us because we focus on the work and creating an environment where talented people can do the things that their talent allows them to do. And that's where the needs assessment comes in. I'll never forget one of the projects that I worked on, we're asked to do team training. We did a needs assessment. The organization didn't have team. So if that's what's happening, like you can throw money at this problem and you're not going to solve it. But that's because there's already been a stakeholder within the organization that says that this is what we're going to do. Now find somebody that's going to do it. So rather than, Ben, you talked about being a medical doctor, rather than looking at us as medical doctors, the idea is that we are McDonald's. Hey, I ordered a quarter pounder with cheese. Where's my quarter pounder with cheese? Viewed as we're working together, we're in a partnership together to help your organization be more effective. Probably we'll have some students or some graduates within the IO space and the applied organizational psych world, and even perhaps some human resource students as well. What would your advice be for people that are really interested in getting into the kind of work that you guys do today? 
Hmm. Do you want me to be very specific? I don't say, don't enter the work that we're doing. Today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Avoid it. Definitely don't go for a graduate degree. I think I think a big thing is if you're excited about our world, I think an understanding of research or maybe even at a more basic level, being critical of the things you read is probably the first. And the second might be to just brush up on how data is used in HR and you can Google some things and look on YouTube and find out what people do to like compare data within organizations for HR purposes. I think that's a good start to change your mindset or build the critical evaluation skills of how do I look at employees and look at data and compare it in a way that allows me to make decisions. And obviously, a lot of this is more descriptive. It's not going to be like predictive or, or even prescriptive. But that's an interesting start is to look at that. And that kind of builds the foray into how data can be used for decisions. And maybe Sai has some better advice, but I'm trying to keep it really broad as opposed to, you know, go buy a bunch of IO books and watch a lot of IO stuff. You're referring to, like, for example, Harvard Business Review study that looks at some cool data that group of organizations have released relating to their employees and something that they've done to initiate some change. For example, like we rolled out a diversity and inclusion program and these were the results. That kind of research-based, real-world, significant finding, is that the kind of thing you're talking about in terms of keep your eyes open for those little bits of information that come about in the media? Yeah. And I think these things come out all the time now. I mean, if people set up on their phones to get like daily news, you can add in, you know, HR and analytics and see what comes up. And when something strikes you with the title, like, you know, engaged employees are this much more productive or doing this will make you lose your employees. Some of them are obviously sensationalized. But if you read that and start reading it and looking at what's supported with data and what's conjecture and start thinking of like, if I worked at that place, what would I do? I think that starts building the mindset of evaluating what you see and not taking it strictly as being completely true, but to look at why that would have been beneficial, what they might have missed, combining that along with some a little additional knowledge of data and how you can pick apart data or analyze it to do something with it. I believe it even descriptives can be very useful uh, across tabulations. People can use, you know, very effectively for things. I think that's the start. So, right. You get some up. basics under your belt. And Sai, same question to you, but I also would like you to explain to me like what kind of person you take on as an intern as well sure. to your business. That is, in a way, a good example of feeding uh, into that into your world. Just to answer this question, not an IO book, not even like a very sciencey answer. But I would ask, I wish that everybody who's listening to this, if you have a program, if you're doing something within your organization, be clear about the outcomes. And this is one of the things that drives Mike and myself a little batty when we're working within organizations. I'll give two examples to illustrate this. One that's business related, the other than you're trying to solve a problem, you've got to develop a system or a solution that solves that problem. A non-business related example of this is in the 80s and 90s, when I was growing up, people wanted to solve homelessness. And the way they wanted to solve homelessness was we got to get these people a job, right? And I don't know why that would solve the problem of somebody not having a home, right? Like, (laughs) you don't have a house, let's give you a job. And then eventually, in six months, maybe you can get an apartment. That's not a solution to this problem. There are other things, there are other reasons why this person might be homeless, Maybe just give them a house and then let them figure out those other issues, those other problems, and then maybe we can get to employment later. But that type of thinking happens a lot in organizational decision making. 
And if you can get that thinking out of your mindset, then you won't make mistakes around what you do within your organization. The business example of this is organizations say, I have a culture problem. I'm going to deliver a one-hour DEI training, and then everybody's going to be hunky-dory. Everybody's going to get along really well, and that pesky problem that I had before is going to be gone. Or I know I have a problem of sexual harassment within my organization. We'll do some training. We'll check the box, and the problem will go away. And we wrote a paper a couple of years ago about sexual harassment and why organizations were still seeing sexual harassment, even though they did the training, right? It's because they didn't live up to that promise that if you violate the policy, we're going to take this action. So if you're going to come up with a solution to a problem, then make sure that it's addressing the actual problem. You don't need a PhD for that. You just need to be clear-headed about what you're actually doing. And there's so much stuff in organization. There's so much politics and fear around what an organization is actually trying to implement or what is actually trying to accomplish that if you can stay true to that original intent, I need to make a better culture for this organization. Is this thing going to actually deliver on that? If you can do that, if you just align those two things, you'll be ahead of a lot of companies. Let's be specific here. That's what scientists like to be. So what are the minimum knowledge, skills, and abilities that someone is going to need in order to get in as an intent to your company? I think they've got to be flexible because we switch off a number of different projects. They have to have IO knowledge because we actually give them an IO psychology test before we bring on any interns. They should have some basic stats knowledge, uh, not just SPSS, especially. They need to be able to use Microsoft Excel to a certain extent. We ask them to use R or other stats programs. And we'll provide training for that. We will go over how to do certain analyses, but it does help if they at least have the basics down up to like an ANOVA and a T-test. If they can do it in Excel or in R, that's very, very helpful. And then in addition to being flexible, they should have a sense of customer service especially if they end up working with some client-facing stuff. We do want them to understand how to manage and deal with people. If we wanted purely number-crunching data nerds with no social skills, we could find people <laughs> like that, but that's not going to help us. Our interns are usually sort of hybrid. They have to be able to at least deal with and communicate with clients. Mike has been working with one of our interns right now with a client, and she's doing a great job with them. So you at least have to have like a modicum of, I think Mike says this as be a person, be a real person and be somebody that we can deal with and that the client can deal with. And most of all, we do like having people that are kind of fun and enjoy the different parts of IO psychology work. They do have to have yeah. a little bit of passion for the field. You're a small business, obviously. Whoever you bring in has got to gel with you among the other people that you've got working with you. So it makes sense that you would care about them being like someone that you could present to a client, right? Someone that could actually like hold their own in a conversation, even if they they might be a bit intimidated by talking to some people that are higher up the ranks. You need someone that can actually communicate as well. Yeah, I think part of the sign I feel responsible to give people that experience so they can build that. You can't be comfortable in front of clients right out of school or even if you've just been an individual contributor at jobs, which most people have been. We want them to get that experience, and obviously we're going to guide them, but that's the skill we can build. They'll build I.O. skills, but I feel much better about the client-facing skills, the 
project management and communication skills and just overall conscientiousness and relatability that the interns and the people who work with us get. Because they see that there's a good way to do things that allows you to express yourself and be passionate while also learning things that are outside of the textbook knowledge, which mm-hmm. is probably the most important thing to me as the the loosest version of a quasi-academic that you can have <laughs> as I teach and still do some research. being a faculty member. Yeah, yeah but, I, but I'm really, my passion really is the building the relationships and helping other people learn about the field in a way that's very different from how most, you know, well, the three of us on this call were formerly trained. So I think that's the real value is finding these people that have that potential and are willing to be in front business marketing relationship skills on top of their IO chops. Right. Because there are some things that you can teach and other things that are a lot harder to teach. And I think that some things we can just learn from experience, as you say, to overcome like intimidation. But if you're the kind of person that does not want to make human contact, Probably it's not going to be a good fit for you to go into like the world of consulting, even from a junior level. One thing that you guys mentioned, or I should say you, you left out, was in relation to academic performance and academic requirements. And I think it's interesting because you focused on the communication skills and the analytic skills. And I bet there are people out there that think, I don't have a bachelor's degree or I don't have a master's degree or a PhD but I can do those things or I can learn those things, which absolutely anybody could. As far as I'm concerned, if you're interested and you've got an ability to learn and you've got a decent teacher, you can do it. And so I think the challenge is that you've got this big pool of PhD students, you've got this big pool of master's degree students, and you've got an even bigger pool of bachelor's degree students all applying for these kind of jobs. And in the end, it's just easier to pick a PhD student because you can still pay them 20 bucks an hour and they're a PhD student, or you can find someone who's a bachelor's degree student and maybe you pay them $15 an hour or maybe even down to 10 bucks an hour in certain parts of the country. And yet like that $10 difference, you know, there are PhD students around. So I guess how does someone who's competing with these upper educated people that are all looking for these internships, how do they do it? Maybe I'm speaking out of time for side, but we really don't care if somebody has a PhD because that's not as material to what we do. Also, you know, being straight A student, while beneficial, and obviously there's a relationship of uh, you know past performance being indicative of future performance, and being doing well academically says something about your conscientiousness, which another thing obviously very related to work success. It's yeah. not everything, and I personally feel I'm teaching a lot at the master's level. I like master's level people because they're more malleable. They haven't had the PhD stuff beaten into them like the three of us on this call. <laughs> I feel like it gives them some more flexibility. And we know with the masters, they're definitely going to be practitioners. So I feel like they are more of an open book to learn that. Whereas if you're at the PhD, you're like, well, I want to do this type of work. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, it doesn't jive with being in the field. The, yeah. the master's people are more malleable. I don't know if I could say that there's anything specific that academically or where you went to school, what degree you're getting that influences how I look at somebody. It really is the, let's see what you can do kind of, kind of attitude Mike, for me. But Mike, there are consulting companies out there that probably wouldn't look at you unless you have a PhD. Yes. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes, I think that's a big deal. And it also sets a really weird expectation because plenty of our colleagues, Ben, you know this, they have their yeah. PhD and they're working consulting and their role is very, very, very well defined. 
and very, very mm-hmm. small in some cases. Yep. And I think that's limiting in its own right to have all of this IO knowledge and have to go somewhere and do just one thing. And I think that expectation needs to be set for people who are going into the field. What type of experience do you want? And yeah. do you know whether that'll necessarily match up with your degree and what businesses want? And I think that's part of the reason that Sly and I are doing what we're doing here is there's always some kind of disconnect between the degree and the expectations, not getting the picture of the whole process. Right. Uh, working internally, it's very hard. But yes, the PhD is a gatekeeper thing for a lot of firms, but also just having experience. If you can have a lot of practical experience in human capital, whether it be with surveys or training, that certainly helps. But obviously, that's going away. The amount of people that have that experience and don't have a bachelor's or even, you know, a master's, is, it's hard to find those people. But it's not a necessary requirement other than it's been... I mean, there's a few practitioners that I really respect and really like. And to learn that they didn't have the PhD or were still getting their master's when I spoke to them and saw some of the work they did, definitely even further set in my mind that those things aren't aren't indicative of who's going to be an inventive and smart practitioner. I don't mean the smart by, you know, intelligence. I mean, being critically evaluative and being able to apply things in a way that makes sense. I want to just thank you guys for coming on. I know that you're very busy and I appreciate you giving up some of your time on a Sunday for this. I'm sure that there are people listening that have learned more about not only your organization, but your philosophies and also organizational psychology as a whole. So I really appreciate it. If there's anything else you want to say about your business or about the IO community, feel free. I think the biggest thing for me is if you're listening to this and you work somewhere where you either don't have that traction to get things changed or you see a problem and you know somebody that may be interested, let them talk to us or talk to someone else in the field. We're more than happy to do that. Going back to the beginning of our call, We just want to explain to people the value that industrial organizational psychology can bring to their firm. So feel free to hunt us down at talentmetrics.io and you can contact myself and Cy, Mike at Talentmetrics or Cy at talentmetrics.io. And we'd be more than happy to chat and extol the virtues of our field on anybody who's willing to listen. Totally agree. You know, we're happy to have these conversations. Part of the reason we do speaking engagements, part of the reason we volunteer as part of the reason we continue to work with students and clients to make sure that organizations are using the right tools and getting better. That's awesome, Sai. And how do you guys feel about LinkedIn? And if some of our listeners decided to try and reach out to you via LinkedIn, what's the likelihood of them actually getting accepted as a connection? Pretty good. You know, uh, <laughs> P is greater than 0.05. So probably yeah. greater than 0.05. <laughs> you, must, you must add the caveat in your message that you listened to the amazing Ben Elman podcast. And then oh, I'll, yeah. And I'll accept. I like that. <laughs> you know, I wasn't sure about the title of this podcast, but the amazing Ben Elman podcast. I think you coined it, Mike. <laughs> you know what? It's all about the branding, Ben. All about the branding. <laughs> so it's always a pleasure, boys. I'm sorry that I can't have a little casual coffee, tea, chat, beer, whatever it is with you guys anymore. Maybe we'll see you at Psyop. Uh, not, of course, the next one, but <laughs> 2022 Psyop, I guess. 22, baby. We're on our way. So I'm, very, I'm, I'm, already, I'm already there because it would be nice to see other human beings in person. Yeah. Which, where is Psyop in 2022? Seattle, I believe. Yeah. All right. Rainy, basically. <laughs> you know what? Don't be picky at this point. I'll take anywhere. <laughs> we All right, boys. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to having you guys back on in the near future. 
Thank you. We'd be happy to be back. All right. Yes. All right. Bye. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, or just tell your friends about it. Until next time, this is Business Psychology Unplugged.